0: As the music team's moving down, I would just say, you know, my life uh, changed in a matter of seconds on June the 6th, 1998. I remember bits and pieces of the day, the excitement that seemed so distinct, so real that you could almost see it in the air in front of you. I, re- I remember the nervousness in my stomach that let me know what was happening was going to lead to life. Of real adult responsibility. Real responsibility. And I remember the anticipation of, the, uh, of beginning a new life with a public ceremony that would forever stand a witness against me if I broke the relationship I was vowing to undertake. My life changed forever because of one small Golden ring. I don't have it on. I'm holding it. My life changed because of this ring. Forever. I gonna put it on. I feel kind of naked without it. For 12 years I've worn that golden ring. And I still wear it on the third finger of my left hand, and it's, it's just a ring. It's just a ring, and yet, to me, and to those who see it, it's more than a ring. It's much more than a ring. The ring is simply an outward symbol of the inward reality, of the intimate, real relationship that I experience in my inner man, With a woman. I love to put this ring on display. I love it. I don't hide it. I'm going to stick it in my pocket when a good looking girl walks by. I've learned to put it out, to display it for everybody to see because it represents something. The ring's simple. And in many ways, it's old-fashioned. I mean, I've even thought about and talked with my bride about getting a new ring. You know, there's these cooler rings now. You know, gold's out. Platinum and white gold are in. All the cool little wide band designs and all that are in. Back when I got married, first of all, I was looking for cheap. I mean, in terms of rings, not wives. I was looking for cheap. And mainly because the balance in my banking account was under a $1,000, and that's all I had to my name. I didn't own anything else except what I had in my back and what I could put on in a bag, one bag, not even multiple bags. <laughs> so I was looking for, you know, simple, old-fashioned gold, real gold, like 14 karat. I thought that was a big deal, you know. And I've thought about trading it in, but I just can't part with this one. Because to you, it's just a ring. To me, it's it's more than that. The ring means nothing except, as a matter of fact, if I took it off and gave it to you, it wouldn't mean anything to you. You'd probably trade it in with gold being the price it is and get something for it. It just wouldn't mean that much. And the design's not hip and the look isn't all that much. and But... To me, it's tied to the reality, which is my marriage to Amy Weathers. To me, the ring means something. So because of who she is and because of what we share in the connection of our body, our mind, our soul, our spirit, I wear a golden, simple band on the third finger of my left hand to proudly display what God has joined together. No one should put us under. That's that's what the ring means to me. Unfortunately, the understanding of the importance of a ring in marriage ceremonies is lost in our day. As a matter of fact, and I'm not preaching at anybody about wedding bands, though it sounds like that. It's just an introduction. Uh, some people even come not wanting a ring ceremony. You know, it's like faddish to mix sand or do something else. And and even and that's disappointing to me. It disappoints me that people don't want to be married in a church. It disappoints me for a lot of things, but not to get off on my disappointments. It disappoints me much more when people disregard the importance of Christian baptism. That bothers me infinitely more. Because I think when I was considering this sermon, and how how do we bring a sermon series on the resurrection being applied to an end, I spoke with the elders, and we just all seemed to land in Romans 6. All of us got there. And uh, I took that in some ways as a confirmation of this, this is what I need to preach to end it. We've been there two months in 1 Corinthians 15. And we finished it last week, and I want to finish the Resurrection Applied series by bringing a message entitled... United with Christ in death and life. And I want to bring it out of Romans 6, 1 through 11. And that's going to be our text. I want to gain a confident understanding. I want you to have, I want us to have, I want me to have a confident understanding through this passage of the reality that true union with Christ is. And I want us to understand the importance of the outward symbol of baptism in Christ. And so I have dual purposes. Let me simply mention three things about uh, our stance on baptism at Grace Fellowship in regard to baptism. Okay, First, <clears throat> you can get this off to our website first. We define baptism. We define it. and This is how we define it. Baptism is the New Testament symbol of the salvation of an individual. It is an ordinance of the New Testament church. This ordinance is reserved for those who wish to make a public profession of faith in Christ Jesus, and it is correctly administered by immersion into water. Immersion, burial into water. That's the first thing. Secondly, we do not require baptism by immersion of any person who wants to join this church. And I know you're sitting there saying that is a contradiction. You believe in it and you don't require it. And we can talk about that. You can buy me dinner or lunch or anything you want and we'll talk about it, okay? Make it a good dinner. And uh, uh, we can talk for a long time. And there's lots of views on this and I don't disrespect people that disagree with me or with our elders or with our church. But let me just simply say our desire is not to raise the bar of membership into this local body higher than the bar which is set for the universal body of Christ. We don't want to raise it higher than what God has set it for their entrance into His body, which is faith alone in Christ alone. And so that requires some things. First of all, it requires everybody who joins this church to know that we teach believers' baptism by immersion. They secondly have to submit to that teaching. To know this is what they're going to teach. Every time they come to Romans 6, they're going to teach it. And my children are going to hear it. They're going to hear it over and over again. And yet, to not violate their conscience, we have allowed them to say, Hey, I, by scriptural means, believe that I've been baptized. And I was baptized in the PCA church as an infant. And I think that baptism stands, and this is defensible by this scripture and that scripture, and this is where I'm at. It's we're my conscience witnesses. And so we would say to that person, as long as you understand that we disagree with you, we see Scripture on this point differently, and you're willing to submit to our teaching, not yours, and understand we won't teach it your way, you can come be a part. We'll love you. We'll join with you. We see it as an act of showing the bond and the unity, not watering down. Our belief on baptism, I hope you don't perceive that this is some kind of devaluing right, the right of baptism. The pastors have consistently confirmed in public teaching and private counsel that baptism is an act of obedience which gives us clear public profession of faith to the church and to the world, but we have also held on to the conviction that the standard of admission to the body of believers at the local level is the same as that which is required at the universal level. Christ alone. Faith in Christ alone. And that's that's it. So, third, I want to say that I, I want to make this clear. I know uh, this may be controversial. Stick with me. The church here, Grace Fellowship, has always discouraged parents from presenting their children to, el- to the elders for baptism at an age younger than 11. Um. I know that some of you have a desire to see your children baptized. I want to see my children baptized. So I commiserate with you in that desire for our children to be baptized. But what we want, and I think what you want more than anything, is for them to have a clear and constant witness of a real relationship with Christ because they have been changed inwardly. And you don't want to steal something that might not have ever happened internally and neither do we, and so we've kind of backed off and said, "Hey, age 11 is a good time." And so I know that causes some of you struggles. I will uh, we we'll get to the we're going to the scripture. I, I'm still in the introduction, and I want you. This is important. There is no, I underline and boldface no scriptural precedent for baptizing children of any age. I find it rather inconsistent for our Baptist brethren to rail against infant baptism as practiced by our brothers in the faith and then turn around and baptize children at the age of three, four, or five as if that's any different in any real way. I mean, they don't, we don't believe in infant baptism, and I would say we sure shouldn't believe in preschool baptism here. Okay? And so that's one thing I would say. And then I would say that this is not to say that our, um, that our children under the age of 11 are not saved. That's not what we're saying at all. When can a child be saved? Whenever God awakens their spirit so that they cry out in faith. They can be saved at a very early age. And we don't deny that in the least. We welcome them into our family. Not just your family, but our family. We want to celebrate that as they make it known in their life and through discipleship. We want to celebrate it. and so, But we're withholding this public event. And some of you might say that's not fair to them. And I would say there's something more precious at stake than even your child. Your child may be at stake. But the fact that you baptize your child before they have a real living relationship with Christ devalues Him and brings a mark against His name when they walk away from the faith because they were not ever in the faith to begin with. It brings a mark against Him. It's a contradiction that the world can then point to. And 11 doesn't mean... Some magical thing happens and that never happens. It's just precaution. And then I say there's no scriptural mandate to baptize children of any age. And I couple that with the traditional, almost universally held practice of Baptists from the 15th, 16th, 17th, and early 18th century of not baptizing anybody under 18. Before they left their father's home, they could not be baptized. Baptized. And I say, our forefathers in the faith knew something that we better stop and think about. And that is that faith is moldable at the young stages of life. Their brains are like plastic. And they will conform like a chameleon to whatever their earthly daddy tells them. God wired them that way. And it's a glory to Him that they do. And they'll submit to you and submit to you. And they'll pray a prayer after you. And they will claim Christ at that young age and they will then bask in the fact that, and of the glory that their daddy and mommy loved them because they love Jesus. And then when they turn 18, 16, 15, that plasticity begins to break down and they set hardwired beliefs that are separate from the faith. And they then mock that baptism and walk off. And all our forefathers were saying is, hey, until you leave your daddy's house, that's your daddy's faith maybe. Until we see it's your faith, we're not going to seal you with baptism. Walk a while as a believer in the world, all alone, away from the protection of your mama and daddy. And when you've walked with him and been a disciple, we will gladly baptize you. Because they saw something that I think we've missed. That is that baptism, and we're going to see it in our passage Is tied to the inward reality, and it also is the gate into the fellowship of the local church. Baptism is the gate, not the Lord's Supper. And so, in our understanding, uh, we shouldn't be just admitting everybody. And you know what? That means that sometimes we're going to forbid membership to somebody who should be a member, because we're failed and we're flawed. And, and I hope we don't do that, but we may judge wrongly, miss it as your leaders. But would you just trust us? Would you just say, hey, I don't quite get it, but I'll, I'm trusting that they're right. And we may, unfortunately, still admit people who are not believers. And sadly, that's the case. I'm, I know it. So I'm not saying that this makes it infallible, that once they're 11, there's some magic incantation that happens, and then it's obvious that they're believers we can baptize them. I'm not even saying 18 would do it, but I'm a little bit compelled to delay it till 18. (laughs) After studying and thinking, praying. But we haven't. Don't go home telling everybody we have. We haven't. That's me. Grace Fellowship takes the act of baptism seriously because Paul teaches that it is a very serious part of your life as a believer. We require some things in preparation to baptism. And here are the things we require. A person... Should make a true commitment by faith alone in Christ alone prior to their baptism. We invalidate, uh, really, any baptism prior to your conversion because we believe that baptism rightly symbolizes what has already happened, not predates it. That's our belief. We hold that humbly, we think we, we believe it scripturally. And so we hold that. Secondly, a person should then come to the elders of the church and request baptism and request entrance into full membership into the church, the local church. They should ask, seek the church's approval of their faith. If the person's still in the Father's home, especially at eleven, 11, we, we just ask some additional things happen. First of all, An initial meeting with the elder that usually takes place with an elder in their home with their mommies and daddies. We talk and discuss and think together. Then a confirmation from the parents that they feel the child is prepared for public life in the local church. A life of discipleship with Christ and also understand the meaning of baptism. So we ask the dads and moms to affirm that they are ready to turn their child over to the church for discipline, if necessary. I remember talking with Eric. His eyes got about this big. I'm like, oh, <clears throat> yeah, I, I didn't really think about that one a lot, but I will. It's, just, it's really a thoughtful, provoking thing to say, my five-year-old being baptized is now in full membership, so therefore if they persist in sin unrepentedly, They can be brought before the church for discipline. Is my my child ready for that spiritually, emotionally? Are they ready for that? If not, then baptism might need to wait a while. Let's don't rush it. And the mentoring, then having confirmed that all this is understood and held to by the parents, the mentoring of the child by the father, or if the father's not present, by an approved person. Towards baptism. In other words, we have material prepared so that when you say, my child's ready and we all agree on that, we hand you a manual to go through with your child. We have a couple families doing that right now. Or the process of becoming ready for baptism. Understanding it. And then, after that, there's a confirmation by the father or the mentor that the child has completed all the mentoring and now is ready to come before the whole body of the elders and make a confession. The written spoken in some form a clear confession of faith and to be admitted then publicly and prepared for a baptismal service well as you can see we take baptism very seriously not very lightly some of you say man I was baptized I came down, signed a card that night they dunked me, handed me a Bible, pat me on the back it was over that's what happened to me too And not because my experience is superior to yours, but because the experience of God's Word and the experience of years and testimony after testimony is, that's not the best way. And so we've kind of sought to put some mediums in there. You might bring up that, well, in the Scripture we don't see all of that because they just believe and they're baptized. Yes, all of them are adults. And all of them live in a culture Where being baptized publicly meant they lost it all. Family, friends, business, standing in the synagogue. They lost everything when they went to the Jordan and got baptized. Or went like the eunuch and got baptized. And many of them were fed to the lions because they were baptized. So whenever the lions show up, we'll start baptizing people immediately. Because if you're willing to come forward under those circumstances, who am I to question whether it's real or not? We have Christians, missionaries to every tribe ministry. They change their stance and they baptize immediately in Papua New Guinea and in Mexico. Why? Because in those cultures, people pelt them with rocks and curse their families because they're being baptized. And they say, who are we to put some external filter on being baptized when the filter of persecution's in place. We just baptize. But they will tell you, David Sitton or 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 Rob Rod Connor would tell you in our situation, in our context, there better be some filters or you will have masses of people being baptized, going out the back door, and you never see them again. So we don't live in the Sudan. We don't live in Papua New Guinea. We live in the United States. In the south of the United States where being baptized is like eating fried chicken, apple pie, and dinners on the grounds. It's what we do. And that's not what Paul thought about when he thought about baptism. We just want to encourage you as a family to nurture faith, encourage faith, prepare children of faith for the responsibility of local church membership and baptism. Don't just rush them to get baptized as if you can relax at that point and say, oh, it's all finished, they're baptized, they're in. No, your job becomes infinitely harder at that moment. Infinitely more responsible are you now that your child is baptized and gone public. Lots more discipline involved now. Lots more pain. There are people who will be admitted and there are people who will be withheld. And may God use us and our judgment and His Scripture to rightly discern the fruit that's evident in your life and our lives so that we don't ever withhold membership from anybody who needs to be in membership. So we come to our text. Now that I've given you our position on baptism, why do we take it so seriously? And what does it have to do with the resurrection? Romans 6, starting in verse 1. What shall we say then... Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. Your translation may say, may it never be. That's a strong answer. Almost like his double negatives in other places. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We are buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death in order that with Him, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old man, our old self, was crucified with Him. In order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one has been has died, has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with Him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Man, Romans 6 is a masterpiece from the apostle's pen, from his heart, from the spirit. What is Romans 6 through 8? Let me, may I just say this as a way of outlining? I know we're not teaching Romans as a whole book, and I'm not going to. Do it justice, but just quickly say this about outline. He starts in chapter 1 introducing himself, first 17 verses, all about the apostles' introduction. Then he launches directly in verse 18 into a, an understanding that the Gentiles have all sinned. The Gentiles, they worshiped themselves and not the Creator, and they went into sexual perversion and sin as a proof and a seal of their sinfulness. He's saying this and the Jews are saying, amen, amen. And the moral Gentiles are saying, that's right, Paul, preach it. And then he says in Romans chapter 2, beginning at the beginning, saying, you moral people who have obeyed the law that was inwardly written on your heart, though you were not a Jew, you acted like a moral person, you are condemned because you've not perfectly kept that law. And so you deserve God's damnation and wrath. And then the Jews said, amen, amen. The apostles condemn these Gentiles. And then he turns on the Jew and says, Listen, you followers of Moses, you keep in the law, you're condemned. Every one of you. That's not why he wrote the law. He wrote the law to assign everyone under sin. So that, great statements like so that in the Bible, you need to pay attention So that He then might freely justify those under sin through Christ, His propitiatory sacrifice. He's assigned us all under the sin so that we might be delivered by one man. He starts into the launching of justification by faith alone. And chapter 4 is a beautiful chapter on faith alone. And the beauty of of us being reconciled to God, legally declared righteous in the sight of God... By faith alone. And he comes to Romans 5 and he says that now, (coughs) being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And, And we get this beautiful, again, picture of our unity in Christ because he has declared us righteous in Christ. And then... He comes down to verses 12 through 21 and he says Adam was a representative of all mankind and in Adam all sinned and all die and Christ is the second Adam. Those who are in Christ have been transferred from the kingdom of Adam to the kingdom of Jesus and they have received his good works. They have received his, uh, his works have been assigned to their account so that they are legally Free. They've been transferred. They are free. He goes from an accounting term to a legal term, back and forth throughout this book to describe our justification. And so in chapter 6, what does he fight? Antinomianism. You don't know what antinomianism is maybe, but it's the thought that we're not under the law. So we can sin. We can do whatever we want. Shall we sin that grace may abound? And some we're left to believe were saying, "Please say yes, please say yes, please say yes." And Paul said, "God forbid. <clears throat> may it never be." Is another way he says. By no means should we live in sin, so grace may abound. And so we get into Romans six through eight, which is all about our sanctification. First five chapters, all about. Assigning us under sin so we might be justified. And then the next six through eight is all about his plan of sanctification. And that's where we're at. And this, this chapter has become, as some of you guys know, I've already been through it with you, a beautiful passage to me. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? May it n- by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? First of all, we need to see that we have died to sin because we have died with Christ. He says that in verses 1 through 4a. Also in 5a. Also in 6 through 8a. I want to read those passages together. (coughs) How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into His death we were buried therefore with him by baptism into his death, into death. 5a. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, 6 through 8a, we know that our old man, our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, If we had died with Christ, you see it there, died with Christ. 10a, he goes again. For the death he died, he died to sin. 11a, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin. We have died to sin with Christ. This is not legal fiction. This is not some great Houdini act where God waved a wand and all our sin disappeared. This is a real, legal, judicial reckoning of who we really are in Christ. There is an organic union with Christ that only a believer can understand. And so I want to talk about it. How can we who died to sin still live in it? You say to me, I haven't died to sin How how have you not died to sin? Well, I sinned this morning already. I'm sinning right now. I've sinned yesterday and I'm going to sin tomorrow. How can you say I've died to sin, Carl? How can Paul say that? Well, because he understands the terms of salvation. He would say there is a penalty of sin. A penalty of sin, for sin. He would, in terms of the penalty of sin, say to Christians, you have been saved. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The penalty of sin has been caught up in the death of Christ in such a way that you no longer have it. You are not guilty before the judge any longer. You are free from the penalty. There is no condemnation. That we call justification in theological terms, in biblical terms. Then there is a power of sin. A power of sin. That's where Paul would say we are being saved. He declared us free of the penalty and he has defeated the power. Yet, that is not a once and for all act experientially. It is done, but we don't experience it as done every moment of every day, do we? Because we still sin. That's sanctification. It's declared and yet it's being worked out. In our daily lives, we are being saved. And then there's a third way sin has infected us. It's the presence of sin. The penalty is dealt with. The power of sin is defeated. Though we still are struggling, it is defeated. The presence of sin, we don't see it actually experientially changed at all. Sometimes, in a lot of ways, the presence of sin is real. And it's in us. And Paul would say, that's how you will be saved. That's Romans 8. That's the glorification which we are waiting on. In glory, the presence of sin will be no more. So in Christ, we have been justified. We are being sanctified. And we will be glorified like it. So Paul says, how then shall you who are dead to sin still live in it? When he says that, he's saying the, the penalty is gone. Therefore, the threat and the power is gone. So why are you still living in it? Do you see that? Paul would come to me when I sinned and say, Carlton, you're not applying the justification which is a reality in the heavenlies. You aren't under the penalty of sin. So it has no threat for you. Satan buffets and we buffet back by the Spirit. You have no say in my life anymore. You have no power in my life anymore. The flesh rears its head, and we know it has no power over us. Its presence is there, but its power is gone. And so we don't have to sin. You do not have to sin. You've been set free. So Paul would say, having died to sin, how do you continue to live in it? That's his solution to antinomianism. That's his solution to those who would say, We don't, we're free by grace. We can live however we want to live. Paul would say, No. No. You won't want to live that way. You've been set free. You're no longer a slave. He brings that up in verse 6, doesn't he? Enslaved to sin. You aren't enslaved to sin. I'm not enslaved to sin. So, when the person tells me over a cup of coffee at Java Jolt, I see what you're saying. I believe it. I'm a Christian. But Carlton, to be honest with you, I just cannot move out of my girlfriend's apartment. I can't do it. I can't quit lying. I can't quit stealing. I can't quit loving myself more than Christ. I can't quit. It's too big for me. That's a contradictory statement. It cannot be true. You cannot be in Christ and enslaved to sin. So in that moment, the person is doing one of two things. They either are not in Christ. They have duped themselves. Others have duped them. And they believe they're saved and they're not saved. And so therefore, they cannot, they literally cannot refrain from sin. They have no power over it. they got willpower and they may resist one time or two times. But in their heart, that passion grows and grows until they feed their flesh. It has real power over them. They're enslaved to it. So that, that could be the person's really lost. Or the person is living, willingly presenting themselves every day to that sin rather than presenting themselves to Christ. And eventually God in His discipline will bring them out of that. And it might be through my words across the coffee table. It might be years down the road through shambles of a life. But God will bring them out of that. In other words, adultery is right there in front of me and it looks enticing. But as a believer, I can say, that has no power over me. I am in Christ. I present myself to Him, not to that. And walk away. And it can holler, it can scream, it can throw itself at you over and over again. And you don't want it. Or, as a believer, it can be right there in front of me. And I can say, yeah, I need to present to Christ, but I'm presenting myself to the sin. It's funner. It's easier. And I live there for the moment, but only for the moment. And it is a weak master. I explain it to my children as a line without teeth. It can't kill you if you really are saved. It can't kill you, but it can gum you to death. It can bruise you up. It can bang you around. It can scare the bejesus out of you when it roars. But it can't kill you. I want to affirm that. It cannot have you. Christ has you. And Paul would say that. We have died to sin with Christ. And the key word in this whole thing that we don't even focus on is with. This one of the simplest words in the passage uses it six times. Did you hear it when I was reading? With Christ. With him. With Christ. Over and over and over. What is he saying? Here it is. How did I die to Christ? How did I die to sin? With Christ. What I'm saying, what Paul is saying, what the Bible teaches us everywhere is this. As a believer, as the elect of God, when Jesus Christ died, The old man died with him. Historically, it happened. Do you see it in the passage? The old self is brought up, isn't it? And we tend to talk about that in evangelicalism today as if that's some heckling jide exist. uh, Heckling, Jekyll and Hyde. I'll get it right. Some kind of Jekyll and Hyde thing going on in us. The old man's alive. The new man's alive. They're at war inside each other. One guy wins. Sometimes one guy wins another time. No! What God, what God says through the Apostle Paul is, Dr. Jekyll and Dr. Hyde do not exist together. The old man, pre-Christ, is dead. He is not breathing. He has no power. His presence is chained to you. Frank Barker told me one time. In his office I was asking him questions. He said, Carlton, it's like this dead man is chained to you in this life. You drag him around everywhere you go. Every now and then by your actions you prop him up and animate him as if he's alive. But he is dead. He's dead. And he has no power. Only you. The new man can give him power. Only you can pick that dead man up and animate him. And that's when you present yourself to the dead corpse instead of to the living Christ. Do you see that? We are dead to sin with Christ. When he died on the cross, it's not fictitious because when he died on the cross, my old man was in him and died. Died. Gone. Paul said, my old man was nailed to the cross. That's how Paul talks about it. And so it's no longer I who live, but Christ living in me. In such a real way, we died with him that if he did not live in us, we wouldn't be alive. Spiritually, we still wouldn't be alive. We'd still be dead. We have died with Christ. Christ. Everyone who has suffered with Christ on the cross, everyone who's believed and had faith has suffered with Christ. It's historical. But experientially, it happens at conversion. You say, well, if I died with Christ back there, how come I lived in sin all those years? Because experientially, on this earth, in this time-space continuum, you didn't die until He saved you. Miraculously, powerfully, He resurrected your dead spirit. You, you 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 didn't realize what was in heaven true already in your personal life so it historically happens it experientially plays itself out in sanctification on a daily process i pick the corpse up less by the grace of god every day than i did the day before i love that dead man a lot less every day and if i don't if i still love that dead man I might ought to think, am I still dead? Stop with this magical prayer life that somehow, by praying and saying some chant with your eyes closed and your head bowed with sincerity, you were saved. Stop with all that nonsense. Your life tells you whether you're saved or not. Whether your life is in Christ or your life is in you. And so Paul would say, we are dead with Christ. and uh, Dead with Christ to sin. Now, secondly, he would say, we've been raised with Christ to new life. If all he had to say was, we died with Christ, it would be depressing. But he doesn't stop there. The back half of all those verses I read is a clear picture of resurrection. Look at four, verse 4b. Four in order that just as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. 5b. We shall certainly be united with Him, same words, in the resurrection like His. What a beautiful picture. And then in verse 9, we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him and we are with Him, therefore it has no dominion over us. For the death He died to, to, He died to sin once for all, but the life He lives, He lives to God and so with Him we live to God. That's what Paul's saying. So you consider yourself dead to sin. Reckon yourself dead to sin. Believe that you are dead to sin, Alan. Believe that you are alive to God and live in Christ Jesus. That's what Paul's saying. That's sanctification. As plainly as it can be put. What is sanctification? Sanctification is the daily presenting myself to Christ and living as dead to sin. That's the process of sanctification. And so He is saving me continually, continually, preserving me. And so, we have been raised with Christ. So what does the resurrection have to do with me? We've been raised with Him. It has everything. Historically, when He was buried, our old man was buried. And when he was raised, our new man was raised up with Him. And it was seated with Him in the heavenly places when He ascended. You didn't become a Christian as if that was some offhand happenstance to God. Oh my goodness! Carlton was studying Ephesians one day at 18 and believed! Hallelujah! Somebody else got saved. Boy, Jesus, you did a good job with Him. No. No. When I was sitting on the edge of my bed enwrapped in Ephesians and my heart melting and the tears flowing and the reality of who I really am in Christ was being made alive in me by the Spirit. God was simply seeing into experience what was already historically true in heaven where I was seated. It bothers you only because you've bought into the modern conception of salvation as if it started when you got converted. No! No! It was a plan before the foundation of the world, acted out in Christ historically, and we were raised with Him, and seated there. And so, therefore, He can say, "You are in My Father's grasp, and no one else can have you." Who was He entrusting to His Father when He went to the cross? Who? Who? Remember in John 17, "Those You've given Me, I'm giving to You." Why? Because I'm going to the cross to suffer, and I, I wouldn't lose any of them. Who did He give? The apostles? Yes. Who else? Every person of all time who would believe in Him in faith, He entrusted them to the Father for those moments on the cross. And they have been returned to Him in the heavenly places, seated with Him. Real, true, beautiful picture of resurrection in our life. And we are raised with Him. And so therefore, Paul would say to the antinomian among us who says we don't have law, so let's go sin, why would you do that? Why would you prop the dead man up, make him move, commit adultery, look at pornography, drink, lie, steal, beat, abuse? Why would you do that? Don't you see you find no pleasure in those things? It's dead. Be animated unto Christ. Be alive unto Christ. Now I know slipping in the back doors is fear that we're being made into puppets. I don't want to get into that. I don't believe that. But I would say with Luther, I'd rather be a puppet of God than the handmaid of Satan. So if you want to call that puppetry, I'm glad he did it. And I'm his puppet by his grace. And thankful to be there rather than a handmaid to Satan. Serving as a slave in his household. And third, we in this passage see that the world, the spiritual reality, the best way to show the world the spiritual reality of what we've just talked about, death to sin, living to Christ, is through baptism. The best way to show it is through water baptism. I believe, verses 3 and 4, about water baptism. I know some would disagree. I know some would go farther than me and say that no... It's not a picture. It's the way you're saved. I disagree with that. But I also disagree with the thought that it's only talking about spiritual baptism. I believe it's talking about water baptism. So much so that I think if you're a believer and you are not baptized, Paul in conversation with you would say, as you're pouring out your life and telling him all the events that have occurred post-salvation, and you leave out baptism, after a while he'd stop and say, hold up, hold up, hold up, hold up. So when were you baptized? He would assume it. And when you say, well, I just haven't gotten around to it. I haven't been baptized. He'd say, man, woman, what are you doing? Be baptized. Why would he be so stern about being baptized? If it doesn't save us, what does it do? It pictures outwardly what happened inwardly. If you want to preach the gospel to the world, rightly, one way you can do that is by baptism. If my marriage is not my ring, but it is not less than my ring. It is sealed together. It is one. It is unified in such a way that I don't even seek to throw the ring away because I don't want to throw the woman away. We don't want to throw baptism away and in doing that throw Christ away. Baptism. What is it here? Look at what he says. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized with Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? So I don't deny there's some spiritual things going on, but look what He says. We were buried therefore with Him by baptism. That's the, that's the, that's the crux. That's where I'm at. That's why it's important. With Him by baptism. What does that mean? It's not instrumental cause to salvation, but it is instrumental in our proclamation of our salvation. Proclaiming Christ without baptism to Paul is not in existence. He doesn't even know how that would be possible because baptism is tied so tightly to salvation in order that Jesus as just as Christ has been raised from the dead <clears throat> to the glory of the father, we also might walk in new newness of life. And so I come to the end of this resurrection sermon series talking about baptism for this very one, clear, obvious, obvious, I know it's obvious, not necessarily profound, but in my, it is profound if you think about it, exhortation. I spent a lot of time talking about my wedding ring. And some of you would have said, why not just talk about your wedding and talk about your wife? And I would say that by, do, by talking about the ring, I was talking about my wedding and my wife. And so I would plead with you, don't disregard the importance of baptism. Because when you do, you're disregarding the importance of your relationship with Christ to the outside world. Does it mean you're not saved? No. It doesn't mean that. Will there be people in heaven who were not baptized post-conversion? Absolutely. No question about it. But there are blessings to be had in this life from the confirmation of the outward act of baptism, which you can't have any other way. You can't have them. And that is that it is a strong preaching of the gospel to the world. When you stand in front of a congregation in humility, in that baptismal water, you're representing the death of Christ. And in that water, that's why we ask, do you now make public profession of faith in Jesus Christ alone, by faith alone, through the grace of God alone, to His glory alone, Do you make profession of faith alone to Christ alone for God's glory alone by His grace alone in this act? Yes. That's a strong declaration of your personal unity with Christ. Yes. And in doing that, secondly, do you deny and renounce all of your previous actions in this life as sin? Yes. That's an identity with His death. And do you also, in being baptized, renounce For here in all time, the power of sin and death and our enemy Satan. Yes, I baptize you then, my brother or my sister, in the name of the Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit. And then in taking you into the water, we are picturing death with Christ. That's what Paul says. And when we bring you out, he doesn't say this as tightly, but don't you see it? Buried with him in death. What is the lifting out of the water? Resurrection to new life. And isn't it beautiful how God constructed this ordinance of the church? You do not baptize yourself. An outside force puts you under the water. Why? Because God puts you in Christ. You could not do that yourself. And then an outside force lifts you from those death waters. If it didn't, you'd be paralyzed under there and die and be gone and face wrath. But thanks be to God that he with Christ lifted us to new life. And so when somebody says to me, what's the big deal about baptism, immersion, post-conversion, Oh, I wouldn't throw my ring away. And I wouldn't throw that outward profession away. It is a beautiful picture. It is a beautiful symbol which confirms an inward reality. And it cannot be given to you any other way that I know of. Let's pray. Father, your word is true.